Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Portland writer Monica Drake. Monica's articles, essays, and short fiction have appeared in The Sun, Three Penny Review, Oregon Humanities, Northwest Magazine, and The Stranger, among others. Her first novel, Clown Girl, from Portland's own Hawthorne Books, won an independent publisher book award and has been optioned for film by Kristen Wiig of Bridesmaids and Saturday Night Live fame. And Monica teaches creative writing at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. She's here to talk about her new novel, The Stud Book, published by Random House, a book Cheryl Strade calls a take-your-breath-away-good, blow-your-mind-wise, crack-your-heart-open beauty of a novel, a smart, sexy, comic, compassionate, absorbing, and necessary story of our times. Welcome to Between the Covers, Monica Drake. Thank you, David. Studbook is, is told from many different points of view, but it seems to me like the entryway into a lot of the themes of the book is Sarah, the story of Sarah. So tell our listeners a little bit about who Sarah is as a protagonist and, and what her concerns are. Okay, yeah, if I can backtrack for one minute, it is multiple points of view. And to me, the heart of the book is really about the question of population. And so it it seemed necessary or appropriate that the book would be populated. I originally had even more characters, and then it felt quickly overpopulated, and so I I trimmed it back. Um, You can do that in literature. You can just cut out characters you don't want, right? We can't really do that in real life. Um, But Sarah, it does start with a character, Sarah, who is a woman who studies animal behavior up at the Oregon Zoo. Uh, She spends her time um, watching infant animals uh, grow in captivity and keeping track of how they either thrive or fail to thrive. And at the same time, she's thinking very much about wanting to have a child of her own um, and, and looking at that question of how people thrive or don't thrive. You have this juxtaposition of this woman, Sarah, who's been trying and failing for quite a, a while to, to carry a baby to term, while also monitoring breeding and captivity at the zoo. How did you come up with that, that, you know, that double vision around um, giving birth and reproduction there? That's right. Sarah is, to me, she's, she's very physically involved in the process of trying to have a baby. She's uh, suffered a series of mis- miscarriages, um, and, and they, those were not, have not been easy on her. Years ago, I worked at the zoo studying animal behavior, but that was long before I ever thought about having kids. I was, I was really young. Um, actually, the elephant Rama, who's at the zoo now, was really young. He was, a, he was a newborn, so you can see how long ago it was if you know how his age now. Um, but when I did have, a, when I, when my daughter was born, I, uh, went back to the zoo and a lot of the, some of the infant animals that I, that I observed back then are there now as adults in the exact same place. And I hadn't really been to the zoo much in between working as an intern, studying animal behavior, and then bringing my own child back. So I, I, I just thought a lot about what it meant to see those same animals living in the same place. And did you choose the zoo as one of the settings for the stud book as part of this entryway into some of the uh, concerns around population? I I did. Uh, almost most of the animals up at the zoo, at least all the big attractions, are endangered. And one of the reasons they're endangered is essentially human population. It's human encroachment on their property, on their territory in the wild. Uh, and and so there's kind of a, I, I think it's a little bit... Um, almost a cartoon illustration of overpopulation to see all the children at the zoo literally climbing on the railing outside the elephants. You know, they're just sort of encroaching on the edges of that finite terrain. 
Well, it definitely adds both a comic element to the book to have that juxtaposition there for Sarah and also um, a poignancy, the poignancy of, of her desperately wanting a child in a world of, of too many children That's around right. her. She, she wants a child, and she's also very aware of the problem of too many children. So she what she wants, her heart is a little bit broken um, by wanting what she also is a little is, is aware is aware might not be the best thing for the planet. Well, well, tell us what a stud book is because that's relevant here to uh, Sarah's plight also. Right. A stud book uh, is a record of animal breeding. it's It's obviously a captive animal. Um, that that someone would be keeping track of. The Oregon Zoo holds the International Stud Book on Asian Elephant Breeding, which means that we uh, keep track of who has been bred with who, whom with the goal of uh, keeping maximizing genetic diversity among a dwindling captive population. People also use stud books in horse breeding and dogs and other things. But um, with endangered animals, there's a particular poignancy to the stud book because they can only breed so many animals, and some don't do well breeding in captivity, even with all of the artificial um, or, or, or supported means of science, artificial insemination and freezing sperm and shipping it and sending it around the world. It doesn't always work. And you've really sort of flipped the idea of the stud book on its head and, and looking at humans, the human stud book in a sense. And this book is is really on one level about motherhood. Most of the characters are either trying to have a baby, have just had a baby, or dealing with uh, children and adolescence, a whole other phase. But it's also an, a specific subset of motherhood that you're looking at. You're looking at women and, and their husbands who are wanting children uh, pretty late in the game. So it's it's a it's a cohort of people who, I'm guessing, had some ambivalence going forward about the enterprise, and so have have made this decision at the very last minute. Tell us why that was a dramatically rich choice for you for for the book. Well, I think it is a a, a really I think you've kind of hit on it. Um, they are toward the end of their reproductive capabilities, and the women are anyway, and um, that. That echoes the sentiment of the kind of desperation of trying to breed animals that are also on the wane to me. Um, there's a feeling that something that should come easily and naturally is uh, maybe not so easily achieved. Uh, and there's also an element of, um, of da- danger, a little bit of physical danger. It's m- maybe not the best physical choice for these particular characters. And it becomes also because of this choice that they're in their late 30s and um, wanting to have children, and really a story about aging and transition as well. I mean, you, and, and I think that um, this idea that you have to let go of this former self and leap into this new unknown territory, but when you're that old and you're not 18 and doing it, it becomes a whole different ball game to make that leap. That's right. It's much more conscious too. It's, you're much more aware of who you've been, and um, it's the shortness of life, really. Uh, we were we were talking about maybe having you read a section. Great. Sure, sure, sure. I'll read a short piece from a uh, n- not the middle of the book, but um, close to the middle. Conception was a harsh business. Slam two gametes together hard enough and you get a a zygote. You could potentially get other things too. Chlamydia, AIDS, and the rage of of human entanglements. The big-time energy suck of courtship and nesting. The credit card charge of IKEA baby furniture making everybody a slave to work. 
That was the cost of copulation. Ben put his arms around Sarah, one hand over her stomach. Under his hand, under her skin, their child was made up of cells dividing and multiplying, creating enough of all the right pieces to build a human. The reproductive act is an unacknowledged death in the face of life. An egg and a sperm had committed their tiny double suicide to create the zygote of the next generation. Sarah and Ben would give up their old lives to make a new one. The destruction of the self in the name of creation is a dead serious bonding. That's great. This this tying together of death and, and life, this the suicide of the sperm and, and the egg to create the zygote That's right. is a great image. It seems to me like in literature, when you step back and, and look at the history of it, that there's, for most of it, there's been a taboo about writing about motherhood in any way but a positive one. The mother is glowing and completed in, in giving birth to their child. And um, it doesn't feel like it, it wasn't until quite recently that we started going in there and parsing that experience uh, apart and having that be culturally acceptable. But you really dive in and explore the the comedy and the tragedy of of the people muddling through um, early parenthood was there was there a, an antecedent for you an inspiration in terms of writers who have, who have um, gone into that realm before or was it the lack of them that you might know, have brought you to that i'm i'm sure there there is for, for me though the main the main impulse behind writing this is becoming a mother myself uh, and having a lot of thoughts about that giant responsibility. L- looking at it, it, it's just it's such emotional terrain. And I feel like in the literary world, books about motherhood are often shifted over into chiclet, and they have certain pre-made packaging. Um, and they're packaged the way baby showers are packaged and the way maternity clothes are packaged. And none of those things get at what it really means to have a child. People often think they want a child because they want the image we get of um, Angelina Jolie or somebody very beautiful in, in, a, in a very co- cosmetic and sanitized image. And uh, the whole mess of having children is just so bloody and bodily fluids and dangerous and fragile and full of insecurities. And it's not what we see. And I just wanted to... Um, write something about that and make it funny. I think it's a funny book, but also make it fragile. I hope it comes across as life being fragile. Um, I feel so appreciative of, of having become a mother myself, but it's also very overwhelming at times. I would add that it, the way you portray it is very liberating in the sense that all of these characters don't really know what they're doing. And I think that's, that's really right. true to life, especially probably in America where we don't have a strong parenting culture. There isn't one way to do it. And we have all of these choices and often are choosing different than our own parents. And none of these characters really have a template. And we're watching them in their struggling in very different ways from one couple to the next, but all ways that at least as a Portlander seem very uh, familiar to me. That's right. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're we're talking to Monica Drake about her new novel, The Stud Book. Uh, you describe Clown Girl as an interplay between anarchy and order, and you had the the cop and the clown, and I feel like that is um, something that also resonates with The Stud Book in the sense that you have 
the order of the family and you have the anarchy brought into the the known system by the child or by the desire to have a child. Tell us a little bit about that dynamic because it, it feels like it's something that you're exploring in both books, obviously in, in different ways. I, I like the way you put that. Uh, it, it is very much something that I worked into Clown Girl, Anarchy and Order, Cops and Clowns, um, and how a person makes life decisions in relation. Um, in this book, I can, now that you say it, I see it really does apply. Um, and I guess I did want to look at the way people um, make plans for their lives and, and try to bring about things, but uh, we really can't control it all. So it, it definitely resonates against this uh, drama. And, and Clown Girl is more uh, obviously on its surface a, a comic novel, but it feels like a lot of that is also translating into the stud book in my, in, in my read in the sense that you have a real sense of comic timing, especially around physical humor. And of course, motherhood and infancy is, is ripe with uh, comic possibilities. Are you looking at any, um, any uh, literature, history, or maybe even, I think of Charlie Chaplin, for instance. Charlie Chaplin is one of my favorites. Uh, Charlie Chaplin influenced Clown Girl quite a lot. And Charlie Chaplin actually influenced me in the work I did um, ages ago when I first, I did just a little bit of theater and, and performance, which didn't really am amount to much, but it, it fed into my writing later. And I think that kind of physical comedy element is still here. Well, with especially with some scenes, you know, with diaper changing and yeah. breastfeeding, you, you've done some great some oh, great. great some great scenes that you can just I could see them as a Charlie Chaplin skit or if it, if it hadn't been censored. If Charlie back in Chaplin the time. breastfed, exactly, which would be but, hilarious. Yes, it would indeed. But uh, it definitely you you got a visual and visceral sense of the the comedy in there, and oh, I, I can see why uh, Kristen Wiig would be so interested in in um, in translating one of your books because in a way you it almost feels like. Um, you know the way bridesmaids goes into the the raunchiness of of that whole scenario that you're doing something from a literary perspective around motherhood and and that's a similar at least a kindred enterprise. I th I think maybe a little bit what you're looking at is the idea of women in comedy, which is um, always kind of interesting terrain. But um, there's a there is a question of how women relate to their bodies in comedy and. Um, or how women relate to their bodies in general, or how women relate to their bodies in the media. Um, of course, there's a long history of women's bodies as a form of entertainment value, um, as long as they look right, you know. And 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 we we all know what that right is supposed to be. We all see it on on billboards and on in movies. Um, and I think one part of the 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 liberties I can take as a writer is I don't need to craft. Hollywood bodies. I can make the characters I want to make, and I can um, use any part of their body on the page. It doesn't. It doesn't get a, a, an R rating. It doesn't have to make it through uh, the same hoops. Um, and the hopefully the characters that I have on the page are women's bodies in service of illustrating what it means to be women in their bodies in a, in a very real way. If that makes sense, um, we after I, I finished this book, we came into sort of in, you know in the time between finishing it and publication, the conversation, the political conversation around um, reproductive rights has just in grown increasingly absurd. Really, 
uh, and terrifying. And um, I think it's interesting that this book is coming out against that political backdrop. That that is an interesting parallel, and I also feel like focusing on the physical, the physicality of motherhood and child rearing, segues well into the the um, theme around the Oregon Zoo and around the ways in which humans are very much animals. That's in, right. In a sense, That's because right. we think of ourselves so differently, we want to portray this image of it all very neat and and rational, and really it is this anarchic, um, but right. also very instinctual. That's and, right. Uh, event that's happening, and and we're all we're all competing for the same resources globally. Although we might not recognize that, we might think some countries are doing well, other countries are struggling. Um, but but when uh, pollution from China and Japan drifts over the Oregon uh, sky, you know we're reminded how every baby is born onto the same planet. Uh, when there was an article in the, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, an editorialist was talking about how the United States is uh, losing the war on population by not having enough babies, um, while other countries like China and India are pulling ahead of us. And uh, of course, it's laughable to imagine there's some kind of border between babies born in countries that they are pitted against each other. Um, but along these same lines, people often think in terms of religious borders, they think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a go forth and multiply mentality in different religions, you know, if we'll have more Mormons, more Catholics. Um, and, and, and I think all of those borders are just, they're fabricated. But I would also erase the border between humans and animals. When there are more humans born, there's less space for animals. And there is a giant uh, benefit to sustaining a biological diversity globally. So um, th- although the book's a comedy, I'm making it sound very serious now, but those are my concerns at the, at the crux of this uh, question about um, childbirth. It's true that there are all of these questions in the book, but it also is a real s- sort of raucous, enjoyable read at the same oh, time. Thank you. So Good. it doesn't feel like you're reading a, a treatise on environmental destruction. When I say it now, it sounds very serious, doesn't it? But what about the issue when you're talking about the war around uh, reproductive rights? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's also this another issue in, in feminism around uh, motherhood as as culturally legitimizing to a woman, and it's something that um, a lot of these characters are struggling with too. I think you know the pressure that you have um, within our own culture to be a mother. That's right. There are, exactly, there are ideas that motherhood is culturally legitimizing, exactly as you say. There's an idea that part of growing up is becoming a parent, whether a mother or a father, that somehow um, keeps it, maybe a little bit more for mothers, but I think think it's for both genders, uh, that you're somehow not fully grown up until you've moved into that parental role. And I have one character in the book who has made a conscious choice not to have children, there, she she gives voice to that question of being viewed uh, in a different light because she has not ever entered into that parenting role. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Portland writer Monica Drake about her new book, The Stud Book. Uh, even though this book is very um, women-centric in terms of the protagonists, there are uh, I think really three-dimensional depictions of the men. The the men are are it seems to me are mostly uh, failing in their uh, struggling into the transition around fatherhood, but in ways that 
we can have empathy for and and can connect to the issues that they're having. And I was curious how how easy it was for you to write from the the male perspective. I I really like the male characters in the book, and even one one male character is humble. He maybe proves himself unlikable at at, at certain points in the book, but I can actually kind of. Um, give voice to some of my own thoughts through Humble's behavior. Um, so I'm, I don't feel uh, divorced from Humble, if I put it that way. I, mean, I don't feel separate from his impulses, although I don't admire his impulses, and they're not my own actions. Um, Could you tell us what momism means, uh, the the issue uh, that comes up around with some of the women and, and their husbands? Yes, momism is a term from psychology, and it, and it really is that idea of projecting um, certain ideas onto your female partner, onto your mother, blaming the mother. It, it, it's, there is a conflation of, of mother and wife um, into similar roles, but it has, to, it has a lot to do with blaming mom for everything, um, but also projecting that mother role uh, onto a wife who may or may not be a mother. Well, obviously we've we've talked a lot about how you bring a child into the world, you have to there's a death involved. You're mm-hmm. you're leaving behind mm-hmm. a, a previous mm-hmm. life and you're going into a new one. Mm-hmm. Another way that that I think the stud book really functions to resonate off of that theme is your portrayal of Portland. You have uh, the portrayal, all these people, because they're in their late 30s, are aware of the Portland that used to be. That's right. And they're they're in a new Portland that hasn't entirely been born. It's in the process of being birthed. And yet they're, they have a longing for this old Portland that, in a sense, represents them before they had to make this decision to have a child. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit about the old and the new Portland and, and how that became a, a, a sort of a background character for the stud book? Well, I, I've been in Portland a long time. My um, my dad was born and raised here, and I've been here off and on through my whole life. And I do have, I admit, I have a big nostalgia for the old Portland. Um, and Portland's gained such a reputation now through um, articles and the TV show Portlandia. And I guess in some ways, uh, not that I was speaking directly back to Portlandia, but I just wanted it, it was it was it was fun for me to give voice to some of the changes that have happened um and as you said it does represent uh, a younger time a more childlike time for the for the characters um and just sort of the yeah the the infancy of what is still a relatively young city yeah i i i've got a lot of friends that have been here their whole lives too and it's kind of fun to get together and grouse about some of the changes right we get to be old timers curmudgeons we get to say that we uh we colonize the old man bars for all the hipsters now, right? As far as being one of the old timers, in a yeah. sense, you're one of the old timers in the writing community here in Portland because you're one of uh, Tom Spambauer's first uh, yes. students in the Dangerous Writers program. That's right. Can you, uh, can you talk about any ways in which his mentorship has informed the way you approach writing this book? Yes. Uh, Tom is wonderful. Uh, I was his first student uh, way back in the old days, and um one thing that Tom, I feel, really imparted to to me anyway was a was a big heartedness and a willingness to help other writers and to sort of be in it together. I re- I always remember the day he um, he said, "Let's just pile all our rejection slips up in the middle of the table," and it was like this good spirited um, way he put his hand out and sort of conjured up the image of a big pile of rejection slips. And we never actually physically piled up our rejection slips, but but the invitation to accept rejection was such a great thing that it made 
the inevitable rejections that came along over the years um, easier to take, to say we're all in it together, uh, it's just fine, it's part of the process. He also always said with writing, you just clock in, do your job, clock out, and eventually you'll get a raise. And I kept that in mind for a long time. I still do, but yeah, for a long time. Well, speaking of the clocking in and clocking out, Clown Girl really was an enterprise that took you many, many years. That's right. You put it out in the world, got feedback, and brought it back and Mm -hmm. did a lot of revision. And Mm -hmm. and the stud book has happened over a much shorter period of Mm -hmm. time. What is it that you learned to be able to streamline the effort for you and your, your second novel? Well, in, when I started writing, I was writing short stories and occasionally poems. Um, and th- I'm talking about way back in the beginning. And uh, I, I worked with Tom, and then I decided to go to grad school because I felt like grad school was just the thing to do. I, th- I thought, well, I'm loving writing so much that I should get a degree in this. And when I went to graduate school, the, um, the focus, again, was on short stories because they're uh, the workshop is very conducive to talking about a short story, particularly a short story of a certain length. Um, and so when I graduated from graduate school, I, I wanted to write a novel. And I realized I had this graduate degree, but I really didn't have um, the tools I needed to write a sustained piece. And so I had to kind of learn that um, by trial and error. And there's a there's a world of difference between writing a short story and writing a novel. Um, so that's that took that took me a while. And you're actively involved now in Portland in developing a BFA program for people who are aspiring writers. Tell, tell us a little bit about what that is. I mean, most people don't hear of, of BFA programs. That's right. I teach down at uh, the Pacific Northwest College of Art, PNCA, and we've just finalized and, and, and gained approval on a BFA in creative writing. That's an undergraduate degree, but it's an undergraduate fine art degree uh, where we treat writing as an art um, students will be taking a series of visual art classes alongside writing classes. So they'll take drawing and basic design and art history while they're taking writing classes. And the whole time we're treating writing as a, as a fine art. Um, the program is built in a way that it can accommodate students who want to write short stories, essays, and novels and poems, the more conventional um, approach to writing, but it can also accommodate students who are just interested in language, and maybe they're interested in working with projections, projecting single images on a on a wall for a political statement or an idea-driven conceptual piece. Um, maybe they're interested in painting, but using words on the canvas. We can cross those borders. Um, maybe they're interested in writing for video or uh, script work or even for for games um, we're we're working on we've, we've built this program to cast as wide a net as possible in terms of what writing means it primarily comes down to somebody who is interested in um, self-expression uh, through prioritizing the word but you can pull in any other medium well, it feels like the perfect time for that sort of program in the sense that within literature itself, it seems like a lot of the boundaries between genres are breaking down, between poetry and nonfiction, between memoir and, and fiction. Right. People are really playing, and genre fiction's coming into the, the literary foreground. So to actually bring in like a whole other artistic genre, visual arts involved, it seems like a, a an obvious uh, evolution to go for writing. That's right. And with all of the electronic media now, people, I think people have a natural inclination to bring images together with their own words um, and to build things that may not look like what we think of as novels in the past. Yeah. Are you working on any new projects at the moment? 
I have another another novel in the works. Um, the the working title keeps shifting, but uh, I, I wrote it very fast. I thought it was um, in good shape, and then I took a look at it. Now I think I need to start chopping it up and moving big pieces around, and 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 kind of rethinking the goals of it as a as a whole. So so I guess I'm deep deep in in the thick of 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 thinking through another novel length work. Can you tip yeah. your hand on on any of the themes? It, it's set down in the desert. I spent a little bit of time living down in Arizona, and I'm drawn back to that, what, what I consider a very inhospitable climate. As an Oregon Oregon person going down to the desert, uh, the sun was was just scary. It was just scary. And so it has some of that sense of cl- climate threat, I suppose. Um it's it's a little more like Clown Girl in that it's a single first person narrator and it's a young person, um, basically trying to build build a life in a very inhospitable town. Uh, it's kind of an outsider position. Yeah. Well, it was great having you on between the covers, Monica. Thank you so much, David. It's been great. Yeah. We're talking today with Monica Drake about her new book, The Stud Book. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naming, your host. <laughs> 